All right, I so appreciated the time with Ben and Olivia when we got to just kind of hear them respond to this prompt, why is it difficult? I mean, if it was easy to respond to Jesus as king, we'd all be doing it and we wouldn't need a teaching series to help us do it better. But it's a challenge. And as you heard some of the things they were sharing, some of the real life examples of of what it means to surrender parts of our lives that we just struggle with, that we wouldn't want to hold on tightly to. Man, you heard just some things you can relate to, I know. So I'm excited. That's what our Christmas Eve service is going to be. Not just what are the challenges, but then what does it look like when we do surrender to the kingship, the lordship of Jesus in every area of our life. And so we're so excited for Christmas Eve. You heard Michael mention it before. He talked about these cards that are every exit today on your way out. Please be praying about who would I want to invite? Who would this be a great just um, experience and service to be a part of with me? And uh, get going on that. Give them this invite. There's a digital way to send that same thing out. I've got some friends that I'm just going to paste into a text and sin that way as well. But we just really are excited about what God is putting together for that service and are excited to have that with you. Well, it is a pleasure to get to be here with you today. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor of Trinity Church. If you have a Bible, would you make your way to Matthew chapter one? It is actually a great place to be able to find. It's, It's the second half of your Bible called the New Testament, the New Covenant, and chapter one of Matthew is where it begins, and we'll dive in there in just a moment. I'm excited as we think about this Christmas season and all the things with it. I was just sharing with Doug a minute ago, Joanna and my 29th anniversary is tomorrow. And we got married in this time of year where it is all kinds of crazy, right? And we thought, oh, we love Christmas. Getting married at Christmas will be so great. It's great being married to her, I can say that. But um, man, what a a fascinating time. Every year we keep coming back on, man, it is hard to get away. But we did that this last weekend and had a great time just being able to cool the jets. We might have set records for 11, 12 hours of sleep. I don't know if that's ever happened to us, but I think we figured out a way to get some good rest. So we come back rejuvenated, ready to go, and excited for all the things that God is lining up into this uh, new season, this next season of Christmas. So what we're going to do today, I was sharing in our kind of pre-service meeting, I'm a big fan that variety is the spice of life. And when I was sharing with them a little bit of where we're going to go today and how we're going to do it, someone said it smells like habanero. So we're going to get a little spicy today in terms of just trying something very new and different. And this is what we're going to do. In this series, we've identified that Jesus the King, not just the King, the King of Kings, makes his entrance into this world in such a a way that had no pomp, no circumstance, maybe except for a supernatural announcement of angels to grubby shepherds. But aside from that, nothing of what we would imagine, the kind of ceremony and the kind of just glitz that a, a, a new royal being born would have been all about. But not just at Jesus' birth, but all throughout his life, all throughout his public ministry, he was consistently misunderstood. And so what we want to do in this series this year as we look at Christmas through the lens of the king being born, is we want to consider what does it mean not just for Jesus to be king, but to be king of my life. 
One of the things that we talk about in this series we've talked about already is that Jesus is a king like no other. And I thought of an interesting way, I hope it works out well, of a way of looking at that concept today would be similar to what I remember a seminary professor telling us. I remember him talking about a book, a children's book, that his young daughter, he had gone through with her. And I remember him, the way the book was organized is it would have all of these heroes, all of these different kings of Israel, and as it would explain a little bit of who they were and what they did, and even the great ways that they served God, would always be reminding, though, that this isn't the one. This, this Messiah, this snake crusher, was promised all the way back in Genesis 3, but as we look at each individual account, we see where they always fall short. And it was just a reminder, we're still waiting. We're still waiting, and the book, book culminates with Jesus being the one that they had waited for. So I wanted to kind of take that approach today. And what I want to do is I want to look with you in the genealogy, not all of it, but some of it from Matthew chapter 1. And I want to walk briefly today through some of these different kings. Part of the genealogy, the middle part, relates to the very different kings that came from David's line, the, the line that ultimately Messiah would come from. And I want to look at those, and as we walk through them today, I want us to realize in just a powerful way, nope, not him, still waiting. And we're going to say that actually in unison multiple times today as we get to that point where we realize that no matter how good of a leader this king would have been, nope, not him, still waiting. Let's try that. Say that with me together. Let's say it. One, two, three. Nope. Not him, still waiting. And don't worry, we'll have a lot of cues. You'll get to say it with me loud. Here's our now what statement today. Thank Jesus that he is a king worthy of your love and your life. Thank Jesus today that he is a king worthy of your love and worthy of your life. We're gonna dive in. Look how Matthew 1.1 begins. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Watch this, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's taking this tact where he's really drawing Jesus's bloodline all the way back to Abraham, the one of promise. God said, from you, a nation is going to come that will bless all the nations. You'll be blessed to be a blessing. So it's all the way back to Abraham's line, but then he uses this other key point and talks about David. It's going to be a royal line, not just a line of promise, but a, a line of royalness. So as we look at that verse, Matthew 1.1, the next section has 14 generations up until the time of David. But pick it up in chapter 1, verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. 
I want to say out of the gates today, I am very much like you, that when I read genealogy passages of the Bible, I go, I can't pronounce these names anyways, and really just one guy begats another. And I just kind of paste right on through. But Matthew's section today, in Matthew 1, this section of the kings that we just read matters so much related to the fact that we're saying Jesus is the long-expected king, the son of David, who will sit on David's throne forever. Now, when we go through, look at the end of that part, Matthew 1, 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Wow, that's pretty profound when you stop and think about that. Three sequences of 14 generations going all the way back to Abraham. It's amazing until you realize that's actually not accurate. Hmm? Yeah. You'll actually find out that there are three kings, actually in this set of 14, three kings that are missing of the 14 generations from David to the exile. So then it begs a really interesting question. Is the Bible incorrect? Did Matthew get it wrong? Can he not count? Or do we not understand Matthew's purpose in communicating Jesus's lineage in the opening chapter of his gospel? I love this um, explanation that I found from the guys from the Bible Project. This is what they wrote. Look in your notes. Just think about the separated sections of the genealogy of Matthew. It's broken up into three parts that cover 14 generations each. But why 14? Matthew has created the genealogy so that it links Jesus to David both explicitly and in the very literal design of the list. In fact, David or Matthew wants to highlight this 14 equals David idea so much that he's intentionally left out multiple generations of the line of David, three to be exact, to make the numbers work. Wait, Matthew has taken people out of the genealogy? Yes, but this is not a scandal. Leaving out generations to create symbolic numbers in genealogies is a common Hebrew literary practice, going all the way back to the genealogies in Genesis. Ancient genealogies were ways of making theological claims, and Matthew's readers would have understood exactly what he was doing and why. We live in a, a world of preciseness in this modern and even in our postmodern age, and everything has to align in such a way that if it doesn't, excuse me, then people are quick to go, well, there's errors or there's problems. I love this explanation because it comes back to purpose. What was Matthew trying to do? And he's working with these concepts of 14s. And it's not a problem to drop three out of the list in order to demonstrate this concept. So that's the explanation that we dive into today. The framework of Matthew's gospel then this part of the family tree, we're going to focus on the 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon and discover that from one king to the next, we're going to say it again. Say it with me. Nope, not him. Still waiting. Therefore, before we dive into these kings, it would really be helpful for you and I to know what was God's expectation? What did Yahweh say to Moses that a king ought to be like? We find that in Deuteronomy 17. Look up on the screen. Verse 14, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. 
And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. This is incredibly predictive because that's exactly what was going to happen. But when you say this, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites, so kind of start walking through the checklist. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord your God has told you, you are not to go back that way. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from <clears throat> taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel." I love that one part that actually every new king was supposed to have a personalized version of the law. Actually, Hebrew would be written this way. So it's supposed to transcribe a copy of the law in their own handwriting to remind themselves, this is what God has called us to. These are the words of the covenant. This is what we have agreed to as the people of God. This is the first and only time that God ever gives a prescription for the office of king of Israel. And this was the standard they were supposed to live out. And it would be, and they would come to a point where they would, they would settle in the land, and in the time of the judges, they'd ultimately come to this point where they demanded a king, and they did so at the end of Samuel's leadership. Today, my book that I love so much, I'm gonna read kind of interspersed throughout, so take a listen. God's people had a hard time not copying everyone else around them. This was especially true when it came to having a king. Although God warned them how bad kings could be, they just had to have one. So eventually, God gave them a king. Be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. The first king was Saul. He was very impressive height-wise and pretty disappointing in every other way. And that's what we find. Our first of the kings will actually go one further back behind David today. We'll start with Saul. Saul reigned for 42 years. That is a long time. When we live in a, a country where the most, any kind of national leader in terms of the presidency can serve for eight, 42 is forever, four plus decades. Yahweh leads Samuel to appoint a king over them, Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, and while he begins his rule and reign well, very quickly, he asserts the role that Samuel alone, as high priest over the people, should have taken. He takes that into his own hands, and relatively quickly, God says, you are no longer the king over this people. I have taken away my blessing. I've taken away that role from you. I've given it to another. And concerning Saul, we will say today, nope, not him. Still waiting. And though Saul protests and begs that Samuel would reconsider, he's going to give this king, this role of king to another, and goes and anoints a young shepherd boy named David. Look at this next sequence in my book today. The second monarch, young David from Bethlehem, was definitely much better. In fact, we, before we get to the king, 
there's almost no one more important than King David. When David wasn't busy sinning, which he did in some really big ways, he was a good, wise, and merciful king. Many good things happened to God's people when David was in charge. They were victorious and prosperous and blessed. And so much could be said about David's reign, 40 years. So you have another king, four decades on the heels of Saul, second king of Israel, and he does so many good things as far as leading the people into peace. He has incredible military might. He seeks the counsel of the Levitical priests, and he's staying in step with the desire to keep people, keep Yahweh's people, a people who are spiritually reverent towards him. But the most egregious of all the sins that the book even alludes to is when he takes for himself one of his own soldier's wives and has that soldier killed to cover it up. That leaves a mark that demonstrates his failures and his flaws. He is not the one we're waiting for. And so we say together in unison, nope, not him, still waiting. Back to my book. But the best thing that happened was, that, was what God promised would happen. God told David that he would always have a son to sit on the throne. He promised David an everlasting kingdom. This was good news for David and even better news for God's people. It meant that God had not forgotten the guarantee he made in the garden. A deliverer was on his way. And now everyone who had ears to hear knew he would be a son of David. You see, that's such a big deal because in the same way that God made a covenant to Abraham, from you, the nations will be blessed. From you, a mighty nation will come and ultimately that snake crusher is going to come from them. Now he makes a second kind of covenant with David. It says, from your line specifically, David, a king will come who's this long anticipated king of kings. So that promise is made. And David's son, Solomon, is the next one to reign. Also reigns for 40 years. So track this, 42, 40, 40 years. You've got these kings who are serving incredibly long periods of time. And there would never be a time that Israel would have been more prosperous, that Israel would have been more secure that Israel would have had this sense of even the nations coming to see than under Solomon's reign. He starts out incredibly well. He asks wisdom, asks for wisdom of given any choice, and God grants it to him, and he acts and leads wisely. Under his reign, the nation flourishes in every way until, until he begins to make alliances with ungodly nations through marriages. 700 of them and has this amazing array of wives, every one of them linked back to a nation and a followership of an idol practice that then becomes this man's way of life. And what he introduces for the very first time as a king, he introduces the entire nation to idol worship. And this man who began to be, who started out as the wisest leader ever becomes the most foolish and brings forms of idolatry into every part of the kingdom. Fascinatingly, he actually ends his reign a lot more like Pharaoh, the king that God drove his people, sent his people away from than his own father, David. And so as a result, we say together, nope, not him, still waiting. Look at my book. 
But the next son of David was not the right one they were looking for. Solomon started off on the right foot, but he ended up tripping quite spectacularly. After Solomon, the kingdom split in two, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Neither kingdom was very good. And that's where we read about this next king, King Rehoboam. Rehoboam comes to the throne. He reigns 17 years. That's a pretty significant drop compared to 42, 40, and 40. But actually, the most significant things have happened. He actually listens to the counsel of young advisors, not those who had age and wisdom. And the young advisors say, make life even harder on the people than your father did. Solomon, show them you've got guts. And as a result, the people rebelled. Ten tribes to the north create the northern kingdom. And for our time together today, anytime I talk about Israel, that's what I'm talking about. And then this lower kingdom, the southern kingdom, becomes the nation of Judah, two tribes to the south. The kingdom is split. Civil war ensues. And what started out so amazingly within 120 years is done just like that. And now there are these two severed kingdoms. And Rehoboam does so many things of trying to demonstrate this honoring to the Lord after that mistake, but God continues to uh, chastise him. Ultimately, he suffers punishment at the hand of Egyptian forces. He further invited more idol worship into the land than even his father Solomon did. And as a result, we say together today, nope, not him, still waiting. Abijah would be the next son after Rehoboam. He reigned only three years. It was very quick. He had this idea, this concern to try to resolve the civil war between the northern and the southern kingdoms. He even rightly so, when you read in the passages, and by the way, each of the passages I put in your notes, you can read back at these different kings' um, experiences and their leadership. He calls out the northern kingdom, rightly so, for their total just... um, Uh, this ripped off version of, of following and serving Yahweh. But as a result, his heart was divided, it says, and he didn't walk in the ways of his father David and only served three years. When it comes to him being the Messiah, we say, nope, not him, still waiting. Asa comes to the throne. He reigns for 41 years. Asa and his son Jehoshaphat were the only kings in the book of 1 Kings that are called those who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Man, you got some great leaders that are on the way. He began religious reforms that turned into wildfire revival. He drove out foreign cults, even to the point that he deposed his own grandmother who was serving idolatrous gods. And I love that story. It's like, Grandma, you got to go in order to purify this group of people. He welcomed in refugees seeking asylum from other nations. All kinds of good and honorable things. It looked like he might be the one. Yet late in his reign, he stepped away from his dependence upon Yahweh, from his dependence upon his commands. And he started offering the silver and gold from God's temple to make alliances with nations when he should have looked to Yahweh instead. It's fascinating in the First Chronicles account, it mentions how he trusted military advisors and his physicians, but he didn't seek the Lord. As a result today, we say together, nope, not him, still waiting. Jehoshaphat, his son, follows. He reigns for 25 years. 
He continued even in the good ways his father had laid out. He sent princes to teach the book of the law in remote cities. He established courts of justice throughout the country. Militarily, he attained a level of peace and prosperity that would be rare in Judah's history. And during Jehoshaphat's reign, one of my all-time favorite Old Testament narratives, he, along standing in front of the people, calls out to Yahweh, we don't know what to do but our eyes are on you. Incredible words of dependence and faithfulness and obedience. He did so many good things, but in the end, again, we see this time and time again, he yoked himself in an unholy alliance with the king of the north, the worst king ever, Ahab, and his wicked wife Jezebel through marriage and military alliances. And as a result of that, we say today, nope, not him, still waiting. Jehoram is the son, after these two wonderful leaders of Asa and Jehoshaphat, Jehoram comes, he only rules for eight years. He began in a really poor way by killing his brother, <laughs> taking his brother's wife and ascending to the throne. That wife was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. She promptly leads him into Baal worship and he plunges the nation into idolatry. Second Chronicles records at his death that he passed away to no one's regret. We say about him, nope, not him, still waiting. Uzziah comes to the throne. He reigns for 52 years, up until now the longest reigning king. Three generations actually are in this gap between the last king, between Jehoram and between Uzziah. Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah are skipped in Matthew's genealogy. Uzziah is also known as, known as Azariah. Prior to him, Judah had been a struggling kingdom. That's the kingdom he walked into. Had enemy fortifications just five miles from Jerusalem, just down the road. But under Uzziah, the nation achieved true strength, built up its army, worked on its agriculture and its water supplies. But the interesting thing about Uzziah is that he gets a very short review in Kings and Chronicles because while he did some wonderful things pragmatically for the people, he never did anything to stave off the idolatry that was still in the land as a result of his father and his wicked ways. He ends up violating the law by taking over the job of the priest, which interestingly enough, that's exactly what Saul had done. And his last 15 years, still kind of on the throne, he lived in isolation because he had leprosy. As a result about Uzziah, we say, nope, not him, still waiting. Jotham was the son that would come after Uzziah. He was the proxy king while Uzziah was dealing with leprosy for those 15 years. And afterwards, he continued to expand Uzziah's economic and military strength, but he failed to pursue the needed religious reforms as fully as he should have, failing to lead the people in the kind of spiritual health that a good king would. And as a result, we say together, nope, not him, still waiting. Ahaz comes to the throne, reigns for 16 years. He came right at the beginning of a civil war with the northern kingdom. But rather than trust on God, he called out for military alliances, and he made an alliance with Assyria, this horribly pagan, godless people to the north. And as a result of making that alliance, he opened the door 
again, giving away treasures from the palace and the temple, but he opened the door for future invasions again and again by the Assyrians. Worse, he made copies of foreign gods and set them up all over Jerusalem, even going to the point of sacrificing his own sons in the fire to appease the God of Molech. Just think about that. The king of Judah in the line of David goes so far in honoring and wanting to honor and obey idols and pagan gods that he's sacrificing his own sons in the fire to appease them. How far off the mark had they become? Concerning him, we say, nope, not him, still waiting. Hezekiah, Hezekiah reigned for 29 years. It was one of the best and most important kings of Judah. He immediately stopped the idolatry of his father and reopened and cleansed the temple for a period of national re repentance. He resurrected Passover. Passover hadn't been um, engaged, hasn't been celebrated for decades. And it became at a peak in terms of worship of the people, not since the times of David and Solomon. He listened carefully to the advice of Levitical uh, priests and prophets. God honored his faithfulness with a miraculous, one of my other favorite, all-time favorite uh, Old Testament narratives, the Assyrian army. Remember, we talked about them a minute ago. His uh, grandfather opened the gate for that alliance to be there. Well, they come charging down. 185,000 warriors are on their doorstep taunting them. Overnight, they're all dead. And the Assyrian king turns around with his tail between his legs and goes home. Amazing stuff that happened under Hezekiah's rule. All this for almost 30 years. But when envoys from Babylon come, they came to visit. He opened up the treasure places and showed all the wealth. Arrogance and pride took his heart. And as a result of this boasting, Yahweh communicated that through the prophet Isaiah, that this people would actually be the ones who would return and come and destroy them. Fascinating response that Hezekiah had. Once he heard that it wouldn't happen in his own lifetime, he seemed pretty okay with it. Hmm. Not really the attitude that a Messiah king would ever have. And as a result, we say, nope, not him, still waiting. Manasseh would be the next king. He would reign for 55 years. This guy reigned for so long. Second Kings records his behaviors of being the worst that the nations, as worse as the nations that Israel drove out of Canaan, from idolatry to the murder of innocent people to again throwing his own sons to the god Molech. It's under Manasseh's reign that Yahweh decrees that the southern kingdom will be destroyed and exiled just as it had happened to their cousins in the north. He's ultimately taken prisoner by the Assyrians, has a hook put in his nose as a demonstration of their dominance over him. That's what you're gonna read in the first Kings or in the second Kings uh, um, narrative, but it's fascinating. Second Chronicles includes something the other doesn't talks about actually repentance that came into his life after that episode, talks about bringing reforms, talks about aligning the nation back to worship of Yahweh, a fascinating thing that among all the kings that we read about, Manasseh is the only one who has that kind of not just heart change, but life change. But even still, the damage is deeply done, and concerning him we say, 
Nope, not him, still waiting. Ammon comes to the throne. He reigns for only two years, foolishly continued the practices of his father, and he died at the hands of his own servants. About him we say, nope, not him, still waiting. Josiah. What an incredibly bright spot in all of the kings and especially towards the end of the Judah uh, empire. Judah's pending destruction was interrupted by the amazing rule of the boy king. Josiah came to the throne at only eight years old. He carried out the most extensive religious reforms that Judah had ever seen. He removed the idols from everywhere in the land and they actually under his time found the book of the law. Let me say that again. They found the book of the law. It had been missing for years. How can you follow God's design if you don't even have his word to know what he expects? As a result, they read the book of the law. He tears his robes and realizes the incredible distance that they have been from following Yahweh. And as a result, commences repentance all over the land. The law wasn't just discovered, but immediately acted on. Though there was a great time of national peace under his rule, later, the end of his reign, he unwisely, against the counsel of the prophet Jeremiah, he went out to war against Egypt and he died early in battle at only 39 years old. A puppet king named Jehoiakim was put in place by Egypt and was killed by Babylon when an ill-advised attempt came to revolt. Judah would never recover from this loss. And even though Josiah ruled so well, again, his failures and flaws are evident and about him we say, nope, not him, still waiting. Jeconiah, the last of the kings that we read about in Matthew chapter one, is also known as Jehoiachin. He succumbed to Babylon's forces after only three months. He surrendered and was carried away with captives and he was held captive for 40 years by the kings of Babylon. About him, we would say, nope, not him, still waiting. So from Saul to Jeconiah, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, the kings in the line of David would consistently demonstrate, though some led and reigned in powerful ways, brought the people prosperity, brought religious health, brought a spiritual vitality to them again and again. Everyone, because they were human, had fatal flaws. And what does Matthew's genealogy teach us? It taught the people then that God was true to his promise. From David's line, a king would come, an everlasting king, a Messiah king, and Matthew showed it's this one named Jesus. But for us today, it, it reminds us of a powerful thing, that any type of human leader we would ever see in any role, church, government, organization, anyone we elevate to the role of a Messiah-like figure, we would want to be quick to remember. What have we said today? Nope, not him. Not him because he can't fulfill all that God has said Messiah would do, number one, because he's already come. But number two, what does it leave us in this position? It leaves us in this posture. But one more time in my book today, God punished Israel first, then Judah. In the course of 400 years, God's people would go from top dog to dog food. 
They had been kicked out of their promised land just like Adam and Eve had been kicked out of their paradise. And worst of all, David's house and David's throne were no more. The future looked bleak, especially for the promises of God. It leaves us for the only way to respond in this place that we stand today, up on the screen, still waiting for Jesus' return when he will make all things new. Yea, God? Yea, God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as we have been made aware of these kings that came and went. As you promised that someone from David's line would ultimately be this snake-crushing Messiah king, we see that while some led with integrity and some led with faithfulness, some were horrible and led your people all kinds of paths away from you. But God, no matter who they were, they all fell short because this snake crusher would be perfect. This snake crusher would be eternal. This snake crusher would meet the need they never could. That he would willingly sacrifice his sinless body on a cross for all the sin of the world. Jesus, we say thank you that you fulfilled everything that God had promised. And we say thank you that you not only came, entered into our mess, but you found a way to go to the cross and offer yourself so that you could make all things new. If you're here today and you've realized anew your need for a savior, if you've realized anew, maybe you have put your hope in people around you and you have seen them fail and fall. They have and they continue to will do so because they're human. But there was one, the God man who came and lived a sinless life died a sacrificial death, was raised supernaturally on the third day. His name is Jesus. And today you can respond to the invitation he gives you by A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believing that Jesus is the only savior available. And C, choosing to put your confidence, your trust, your hope in what only he can do to rescue you, to save you from your sin. If you've never made that decision, today is the day of salvation. Don't let another moment go by. And the great news is that we will continue to put our hope in him. We love you and we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.